Hello and welcome again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. In Turkey, and you're in 65 AD. What do you know? You know this. You could be dead tonight. Tonight we recap what we've seen so far. We're also going to discover that what Christ said to his disciples in what is commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse corresponds to what is revealed in the book of Revelation. We're going to see that this message to the early Christians would have given them hope and courage to persevere. And its message can give us the same hope and courage as well. Tonight, Dr. Corbett concludes his exploration of Revelation. This is Understanding Revelation, Part 7. We are looking at the book of Revelation. We've, we are going to conclude it today. And I hope to show you some things that will give you at least an ability to understand what is to many people an incredibly mysterious book. So let's pray. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to show us things we need to see and need to hear and need to know. Father, it, this is your word and your word was written in a way that speaks to every generation. It speaks to us today. It can turn a life around. It can save a soul. It can bring light to a, a mind that just feels like it's enveloped in fog and darkness. And so now, Lord, we pray, speak to us. Help us to hear your voice in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to give you a little bit of a recap of what we've looked at so far. And then I hope to focus mainly on the last uh, three or four chapters, chapters 19, 20, 21 and 22 of the book of Revelation. And hopefully you will have, as I say, a better understanding of what this book is about. I've said from the outset, and I continue to say it, the first five words of the opening verse, the first five words of the book, tell us what this whole book is about. Now, I, I grew up in a church when during the 80s, and even the early 90s, but particularly the 80s, there was so much speculation about Bible prophecy and the book of Revelation. It was just over the top. Uh, someone reminded me last week that there were entire church seminars proving, supposedly proving why. And this is you're going to have if you're under 50, you're going to have to ask someone who this is. But a fellow by the name of Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist, because apparently Henry Kissinger is made up of 13 letters, and 13 is, of course, everyone knows that's of the devil. But apparently, if you translate his name into Hebrew and add up the numerical value of each letter, it adds up to 666. Well, I mean, check and mate, really, isn't it? You know, and he was he was going to usher in the end of the world by defying Christ, and that would be a nuclear holocaust, and we'd all live happily ever after. It didn't happen. But in my time, I've heard multiple, even crazier speculations. In recent times, Barack Obama was supposed to have been before him. Mikhail Gorbachev was supposed to have been, especially since he had a mark on his forehead and it kind of looked like 666. So there's been all this wacky stuff about the book of Revelation. It, it has literally put people on medication. Uh, literally. I've had people write to me and say that they, after reading this and hearing what some of these gloom and doom Bible prophecy teachers have taught, it has sent them into a spin. They stopped going to church. They stopped reading the Bible because they were so depressed. Even in our own church, uh, the other Sunday night when we had a time of testimonies, we had one of our young people come forward and share that they had been thoroughly depressed because of what they'd been told the book of Revelation was all about. Well, I want to 
show you these first five words should set a completely different tone for how you understand the book of Revelation. This is what it says. The revelation of Jesus Christ. There's the first five words. In other words, this entire book is going to reveal something to the reader about who Jesus Christ really is. That's it right there. So by going through this book, you're going to get that. Now, why this is important is because if you understand when the book of Revelation was written, and, and, and I know that you, you, if you've got study Bibles on your lap now, you'll probably go to it and it gives a little bit of an intro. It'll probably tell you the book of Revelation was written in 95 AD. It'll probably tell you that. That is rubbish. And it has to be rubbish. And, and, and I'll remind you why I've given the reasons why that is rubbish. Firstly, John is given a number of He's giving a number of clues in his book. And I think the main one is in Revelation chapter 11, where John is now no longer on the Isle of Patmos. He's told, go to Jerusalem and measure the temple. Well, if you know anything about first century history, I've given you the key dates. The key dates, 64 AD, 66 AD, 68 AD and 70 AD. These are really key dates. Because in 70 AD, what happened? The temple was destroyed. Can you see the problem if this is written in 95 AD and God tells John to go to Jerusalem and measure the temple? John turns up and says, uh, God, uh, the temple's not here. And God goes, what? What happened to it? <laughs> it? It's ridiculous, isn't it? So 64 AD, Nero declared war on the church. He declared massive persecution against the church. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Christians were butchered. At that time, in 66 AD, he declared war on Jerusalem. And that began what's known as the Siege of Jerusalem. In 68 AD, Nero died at the age of 31. In 70 AD, so two year gap, 70 AD, the Romans finally conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple block by block, fulfilling the prophecy of Christ in Matthew 24. So, this is really important because if you, if you can do what I'm suggesting, and that is look over the shoulder of the very first readers. So imagine this. We all go back in a time machine. We're, we're in Turkey. Uh, that's where these seven churches, Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, they are, they are in Turkey. They're a trade circuit, a trade route in Turkey. And you're in 65 AD. What do you know? You know this. You could be dead tonight. For no other reason than the fact that you're a Christian. You already know Christians who've been killed. You already know that you have family members that have been killed for no other reason than they will not worship Caesar. Kaiser Hokurios was the, the motto that they had to give, which means Caesar is Lord and Christians refused to do it. Instead, they declared Christos Hokurios, the Greek for Christ is Lord. Lord, And for that confession, they lost their lives by the hundreds of thousands. So if, you, if you're reading this today going, well, this is obviously written to us here in Australia, then you need to distinguish between what is written to and what is written for. Because this is not written to us. This is a really important point. So John is writing this in 65 AD. We know that because he's told to go and measure the temple. And I've just told you that the siege of Jerusalem began in 66 AD. He couldn't have got in to Jerusalem in, after 66, between 66 and 70, which was 42 months, 1260 days or three and a half years, which the Bible calls a time of great tribulation. And John says, 
in verse 9 of chapter 1, I, John, your brother and partner in the what? I wonder what he meant. Can you see what he would have meant and what they would have understood? Now, knowing the historical background and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The Isle of Patmos is a, a small island and it's off the coast of Turkey and Ephesus is kind of right near on the coastal part of Turkey and it's just off there. So that's why Ephesus is the first church written to in Re Revelation chapter 2. So what else do we see from this book? We see that th this is a, a statement of Christ against Jerusalem for not just rejecting him, but then opposing him. And I'm, if I had the time, I would show you that the high priest, who if you, if you read in the Old Testament, and sometimes we read these bits of the Old Testament where we go, oh man, Leviticus, great, here we go. And you're reading this thing about you shall, you know, the priest shall take, take the animal, shall uh, catch its blood, you shall dip, you know, thumb and, in the blood and then smear it on his ear and then smear it on his big toe. And you're reading this chapter after chapter after chapter and you think, That's, this is tedious to read. And then you come across how the high priest is to be dressed. The high priest is to be given a turban. You to get the craftsman to make a gold band that goes across here. It says, holy to the Lord. He's to wear a breastplate with 12 gemstones on it. He's to wear a sash. He's to have this thing called an ephod over that and all this. And then you read in Revelation 17, 18, that the, the harlot of Babylon is clothed with a headband a breastplate, a sash. And how many of us go, oh, that's odd. Just describe the high priest. And I'm going to suggest to you that when Caiaphas stood before Christ and defied him and rejected him, and Jesus said this, if you've seen The Passion of the Christ produced by Mel Gibson, for me it's one of the most chilling parts of that movie. And I know people recoil at the crucifixion where Mel Gibson shows the nails going in and so on. We, we have here in, in this book... The judgment on Jerusalem and the high priest Caiaphas in that moment where, where he stood and, with, with, and, and opposed Christ. This is the chilling bit for me. Jesus says to him, the next time you see me, you'll see me coming on the clouds from the right hand of God the Father. And at that point, in, that, in the way it's captured dramatically in that movie, and you can read it in Matthew 26, it's still powerful. You, you, get, you get the scene, who's in control in this conversation. Christ is in control. But I want you to notice this. The next time you see me, you'll see the Son of Man coming. Now here's what I... Today, this could be the, the kind of the biggest revelation you get. That word coming in Greek is parousia. It's different to the Greek word return, or even different to the Greek word come back. Uh, come back is a different Greek word. I'm sure there are, are people writing this down. Different to the other Greek word, which is echomenai. And you've got to... When you say that, echomenai, which, which, is, which, which is to come back. And it's a different word. And this is, this is the thing. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll, you'll read in, for example, Isaiah 19, verse 1, where Isaiah the prophet speaks to Egypt and he says this, Woe unto you, Egypt. The Lord is coming to you. Riding a cloud as a chariot. Huh. 
Psalm 96, it says, The Lord comes in judgment. This expression, the Lord is coming, is an expression of the Lord is coming to judge and hold you to account. And if you are held to account and you have not lived up to the covenant that we've had, you will be punished. So one of the reasons we've gone through Jeremiah so meticulously is because Jeremiah was telling the people of Jerusalem, repent or otherwise the Lord will come. And we've seen, as we've gone through Jeremiah, the Lord did come and he sent the Babylonians to do it. So when you're reading coming, for example, in Matthew 24, when the disciples say to Jesus, Jesus has just said, it says, Matthew 24, the disciples show Jesus the temple. Jesus says in verse 2, not one of these stones will be left standing upon another. And the disciples then ask him three questions. When will this be? Or how do they put it? What, when, when will you, here it is, when will you come? And we can read that and think, oh, they're asking when he will return. But they couldn't have been because he was right there. Secondly, he had told them he was going away half a dozen times, clearly. And they just didn't get it. When will you come? When will these things be? And then the other question, the King James butchers the text when it translates it. And what will be the sign of the end of the world? And it doesn't say that. It actually is another Greek word, aeon, where we, we in English call it an eon of time, an aeon, a period of time. When will this be? When will you come? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? The end of the age. What age are they asking about? Well, if Jesus has just said the temple's going to be destroyed, it's the temple age. So I want to show you some of this and show you how it links in with the book of Revelation. In Revelation 18.6, I've just mentioned that Revelation 17.18 talks about, well, the last part of Revelation 17 at least, talks about this place called Babylon. I've, I've shown you, I hope I've shown you, that that Babylon is actually a description of Jerusalem. You see, again, I'm going to show you why we've taken so much time through Jeremiah. Because in Revelation 18 verse 6, it says this, Pay her back as she has herself as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. And what are her deeds? Her deeds are sin. Repay her double for her sins. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. So this is speaking of the judgment that God's going to bring on Babylon. Pay her back double. Well, you realise that's a quote from Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 18. This is what Jeremiah said to Jerusalem because they refused to repent. And you remember what Jerusalem was doing. When we say Jerusalem, uh, we mean the, the priests, the, the, the royal family, the, the leaders of the city. They were worshipping Molech and Ashtate, these gods that were taking their newborn children, going out around to the valley of Hinnom, which is just down the other side of the temple in this valley where the, where the potters used to have a, have a furnace where they would glaze their pots and the people eventually set it up as a rubbish dump and they would just burn their rubbish there and it was like fire going on. The valley of Hinnom, uh, in Greek, it's known as Gehenna. And here the people were taking their newborn babies and throwing them into the potters' furnaces as an offering to the god Moloch. And Jeremiah was pleading with them. 
This is the height of your wickedness. Stop it. The, the people were going out with prostitutes into the hills and having these monuments set up to Molech and Ashtade, the, supposedly the gods of fertility. One represented the moon, one represented the sun, and they were, they were having sex with these prostitutes and, and supposedly this was going to prosper their crops. And Jeremiah says this, at first, But first, I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. And what made it worse is that the priests and the high priests were the ones who were leading the charge. So when Jesus stands before Caiaphas and Caiaphas says, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? And Jesus, with swollen eyes from the battering he's, he's had, looks at Caiaphas and says, I tell you, next time you see me, will be at the right hand of my Father coming on the clouds of heaven. And you might think, well, that sounds like the return of Christ. I'm going to tell you it's judgment language. We sing the song, well, we used to sing the song, as my, my daughter tells me, Zoe tells me, back in the 1870s, Ancient of days. Oh, ancient of days. Da, 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 da. How come you didn't break out into song with me? Da, 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 da. We even had a dance for it. Da, 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 da. I know, I'm going to go wild now. It's like, but that song is taken from Daniel chapter 7, where it says this, Then I saw one like the Son of Man coming up on the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days, to whom was given Judgment, authority, judgment, and a kingdom that shall have no end. Notice Daniel says, I saw one like the Son of Man coming up on the clouds of heaven. Clouds of heaven, clouds speaking of glory, and in this instance, to him was given judgment. So when Jesus in Matthew 24 says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heavens. The Son of Man will come on clouds. We think, oh, he's talking about return. He's not talking about return. He's talking about judgment, exactly as it was talking about in Daniel chapter 7. Now, this book, I've said it's really important to understand who it's written to and who it's written for. It's not written to us. It's written to seven Turkish churches around the time of 65 AD. I've said to you we can exactly pin the year, but we can't pin the month. Well, I can't. Maybe others better qualified than me can, but it's in that time period when already hundreds of thousands of Christians have been butchered. Nero was impaling them alive, covering them in pitch, setting them as lanterns to mark the way to the Colosseum for his games. He was a depraved man. And these seven churches formed the trade route around that part of Turkey. Saying, This is what it says in verse 11. Saying, write what you see, in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and, and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And this is what he says to two of the churches. And it gives us a clue as to what was going on at the time. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, I, I, you've got to appreciate that the persecution that the church faced came from two sources. We read about the first source in the opening chapters of the book of Acts. 
where the temple had ordered, that the high priest and the Sanhedrin had ordered that Christians be put to death. That's why Saul was on the road to Damascus, right? He was going to Damascus to find Christians to drag them out and have them stoned to death. For what crime? I'm a Christian. That was the crime. So Jerusalem was in cahoots now with Rome to persecute Christians. And you can see how the scripture talks about, and we please, if, if you have this romantic notion that, that the Jews of the time of Christ maybe were, you know, they, they were sincere and they, they, they kind of just misunderstood Jesus, as John Hagee says, an American preacher, and he says the Jews can't be blamed for rejecting Christ because Jesus never declared himself to be the Christ. And I just find that staggering. Because Jesus plainly declared himself to be the Christ. And now he's describing these people who are so opposed to God as being not a synagogue, but a synagogue of Satan. Pretty strong language. It says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells, which was one of the towns where there was a synagogue. Pretty strong language. So to, in order to understand the book of Revelation, you, you need to appreciate that the language is drawn from the Old Testament. I've already given you a couple of examples now of where the writer of Revelation has almost directly quoted Jeremiah and will do so again in imagery. Because Jeremiah also called Jerusalem a harlot, a prostitute. He condemned them, actually, as a really... At one point, Jeremiah says, at least prostitutes charge. You don't. And speaking of their spiritual adultery, goodness me. So the language here is, is drawn on the Old Testament. Then all the numbers mean something. We've seen that four speaks of that which has to do with humanity, of earth. We've seen that seven speaks of complete. We've seen that 12 speaks of redemption and particularly leadership and redemption. So these numbers and these concepts are all grounded in the Old Testament. So if you don't get that, you'll read a verse like this and you'll go, oh, I've got no idea. Here, another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So you're going to read that and you're going to go, oh, I don't know. But if you read through Exodus, you'll see God instructed through Moses to the people, set up an altar of incense, set up and cover it in gold. And every day you're to bring in the incense and in this thing called the tabernacle where they were to come in through the curtain gate, confronted with this three metre by three metre by two and a bit metre high brazen altar where they had to offer sacrifices which speaks of the moment you want to come into God's presence you, you have to surrender you have to lay your life down and then they come up to this thing this great big basin which was called a laver in the old language and they had to wash their faces and that laver was made of bronze mirrors and that's why James says look into the word of God as a mirror and wash your face I mean whoever washes their face today with a mirror but you see, if you understand the Old Testament imagery and the language, now it makes sense. Because that was all the mirrors collected from the ladies. And you'd look in and you'd wash your face. 
And then you go into this tent area where there was a table with uh, bread. Then there was a candlestick that had to be continually filled and it fed with oil. And then here, just before the, the most sacred place called the Holy of Holies, was this golden altar covered in gold, full of coals, continually incense. This whole thing was filled with sweet-smelling incense. And that's what that's talking about in Revelation. So what's happening? These Christians are being persecuted. While they're being persecuted, while hundreds of thousands of them are being killed, what are the rest doing? They're praying. What are they praying? Praying that the gospel will advance. Praying that more people will be converted to Christ. Praying that their persecutors will be one to Christ. How do we know that they're praying like that? Because they were followers of Jesus and that's how Jesus said to pray. Pray for those who persecute you, Jesus said. And so all this, in, there it is, there's this picture. And if you, if you can get what's happening, this will make sense now. I want to suggest to you that Matthew 24 corresponds to Revelation chapters 1 to 19. To put it another way, Revelation chapters 1 to 19 correspond to Matthew 24. And I'm going to tell you, that I have good reason to believe that all of that is already fulfilled. And like any Bible prophecy that you can show has been fulfilled, there is absolutely no need to think it needs to be fulfilled again. I'm going to suggest to you, and hopefully I want to demonstrate in a moment, that Revelation chapter 20 to 22 corresponds to Matthew chapter 25. So let me see if I can demonstrate both of these things. Matthew 24 and Revelation chapters 1 to 19 share the following. The time frame is imminent. In Revelation, we read, in, Matthew, in, in Revelation 1 to 19, we read this now, at hand, this hour, soon, all through it. In Matthew chapter 24, we're going to see that Jesus said, All of this will happen in your generation. You will see it, he said. Secondly, the focus. In loco, which is Latin for where it all takes place, is Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem in chapters 1 to 19 of Revelation, and it's Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 24. The third correspondence is that Jesus said in Matthew 24, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, these are foreign armies that Rome had mustered, and the same thing happens in Revelation 1 to 19. There's the correspondence. Here's the time frame that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And I know that there are people who say, ah, oh, yeah, he said this generation, but he didn't actually mean this generation. He meant the generation that is to come. Here's the problem with that. If he had meant that generation, he would have said, this is where you help out. That generation. He said this generation, and in fact, he used that expression, this generation, over a dozen times throughout the gospel. Truly, if the signs that were done in Sodom or in, in Capernaum were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. He's speaking of this generation is the most wicked and evil generation. And it's all through the gospel. So when he says this generation, he means the people of his day, his audience right then. And there's the time frame. So I know that I, I hear people say, oh, Matthew 24, you know, we're, we're beginning to see it fulfilled. No, we're not beginning to see it fulfilled. It was fulfilled ages ago. It's done. Jesus said it. 
How does Matthew 25 correspond to the last four, three or four chapters of Revelation? It deals with the events after the judgment of Jerusalem. They both do. The time frame changes dramatically. It's as if at the start of Revelation chapter 20, someone throws a parachute out because it says this, after a thousand years. You see, that's another one of those numbers, isn't it? A thousand in scripture is a number that's used to convey a message and that message is not meant to be counted. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Job says, I could ask him a thousand questions and each time he could answer. You see what they're doing here? One day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. It doesn't mean that somewhere else, thousand one days is better than time with God. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means that it's just not meant to be counted because it's just so vast. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills is, is the psalmist's way of saying God owns all the cattle. One day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere is like saying one day with you God is better than all time anywhere else. So when Revelation 20 introduces this thousand years, suddenly the time frame changes completely. That's all we have time for tonight, but you can order the full-length version of this presentation on CD audio or premium download by going to findingtruthmatters.org and selecting Understanding Revelation Part 7 from our online store. As we've heard tonight, we can draw great inspiration and encouragement from the book of Revelation when we use sound principles of Bible interpretation to better understand it. More from Dr. Corbett next week. For updates and special offers, please visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.